0: Welcome to Brain in We are delighted to be rejoined by one of our favorite guests. We're going to be speaking to Rebecca Teval about uh, Black Mirror. We've done a series with her and we're going to be talking about a really phenomenal episode called White Bear. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to tell us a little about the episode?
1: Yes, thank you for having me back. So this is one of my favorite episodes and favorite episodes to teach. So it begins with A woman who is clearly very confused, has no idea where she is. She looks in the mirror. She has no idea who she is. Um, She steps outside, and there are all of these people videoing her, and she's like totally bewildered by what's happening. And then these people start chasing her, and it's this extended chase scene where eventually people try to help her, and they bring her into a van and into the woods. She's like, what's happening? And she's running for her life. And then we discover at the end of the episode that she is a criminal and this entire ordeal is part of her punishment um, in White Bear Justice Park. So she is somebody who was an accomplice to her fiancé's murder of a young girl named Jemima Sykes and Victoria Scalane, uh, that's the... the criminal and the protagonist, because we're made to feel sympathy for her as well, had helped Ian abduct her and filmed the killing of Jemima Sykes. And the episode raises all these interesting questions about the nature of her punishment. And I'll teach it to students with retributivist views of punishment and consequentialist views of punishment and free will. Is Victoria even uh, responsible, the current Victoria, given that her memory is wiped every day? So this is a key feature that we learn as well. White Bear Justice Park is able to operate every day because at the end of, of each day they erase her memory such that when she wakes up the next morning she's back in the same situation, has no idea what's going on.
2: So I'd like to start with the personal identity question. Is it her? Mm -hmm. Um, So on my view, what makes you who you are is your psychological profile. So it's a set of memories as well as typical um, dispositions. So in certain situations, I would get happy or angry or upset or hurt or whatever it is. Those, um, Those typical reactions to situations as well as my memories of the past are what make me who I was yesterday because I remember things I did yesterday and I have very similar dispositions. Now it seems when her memory is wiped, she's a very different person. She doesn't remember being an accomplice to the death of this little girl. And um, she wakes up uh, very bewildered and uh, quite discombobulated. It seems like she's a very different person from the murderer. On my view, she's not the same person. The murderer has died. She's not the same person and we're now punishing a stranger to the murder.
1: Totally. Um, I, I love teaching the personal identity element as well to this episode because I think the most—I agree with you—the most plausible view of what makes a person the same over time is the psychological continuity view, and I think that's why many of us feel that what's so tragic about Alzheimer's and dementia is that the the person who was your family member and you knew is no longer that person. They're essentially a different individual, and I think that's true for Victoria. So my view is we are punishing a different individual. So in that sense, and I think in a few other senses, the retributivist justification of punishment goes out the window, because that's a justification of punishment that says this individual deserves to be punished because they made the rational choice to commit a heinous act, and they deserve to receive a punishment that's proportionate to the act that they committed, um, and it very much requires think uh, continuous personal identity. I actually think these problems of personal identity are major problems in the criminal justice system more broadly. Uh, Years ago in Nashville, I took part in a reading group with um, inmates on death row at the Riverbend Penitentiary. And a feature of death row is that people might imagine that the criminal is killed shortly after they've been jailed, but in fact, they are usually on death row and in jail for many years. And in fact, the people in this reading group, they had been on death row for decades. If you have a person who's 60 years old um, being sentenced to death for a crime they did when they were 18, are they the same person? And I think some very compelling arguments can be made that they are not
0: so you touched on the proportionality idea and it's something that's mentioned in the episode is that the judge, when he hands down his sentences that she must um, be convicted and punished in a way that's proportionate to what she did. And so one of the arguments in favor of the death penalty is that it is to treat people who are murderers in accordance um, with their own rules. They have decided through their actions that other people don't deserve the right to life and so it's proportionate to put them to death. Um, If you think about what a rapist does, then the proportional thing would be to rape them. But the view held by the state is that there are certain things that are below the dignity of the state, that it's barbaric to rape someone. And so you ought not to impose that sentence. You ought to have something else like jail time. And then you get these absurd cases. What do you do to a spy? Do you spy on a spy? It doesn't seem like it really matches. Mm -hmm. And what's clever about the episode is that it seems to match what she did pretty well you have that same level of bewilderment, um, which is created in her, like you would have in the child. You have um, all uh, of these jurors, in a way, um, who are playing the role of the observer, um, who passively film her, like she does with the murder. Um, And it recreates that sense of uh, fear and suffering that she um, was complicit in with the child. I suppose if you were to only do that once, then the idea is that she hasn't been punished proportionately because ultimately it resulted in the death of the child. Um, And so doing it over and over again, you start to reach proportionality. Now, of course, here's where the tension comes in because to do it successfully over and over again requires her memory to be erased um, or to be distorted in some kind of way. At the end of each cycle, it seems that she has a realization of what she's done. And there's some level of catharsis. And that's when she says, please just kill me. Um, there's also a sense in which this may or may not be perpetual. So there's a calendar that's marked um, on her wall, and every day they add another X. Now, it could be that, and it's you see that it's in the month of October, um, it could be that this is just a punishment for a month, and that's the end of it, or they just keep marking that calendar until she dies. We don't really find out. Um, but it's, it plays with our intuitions on that front. I wonder whether you ultimately think that uh, the punishment that's performed is the correct punishment. There is a further one besides the desert basis, which is that she is the kind of person who has the disposition to do this. So even if you go and erase her temporary memory, you might think that if you released her, she's still the kind of person who has that capacity to go and um, watch a child being murdered and, and record it, to be complicit in a terrible crime. And so you might think that act of special deterrence Um, of doing this to her over and over again is a way of stopping that from happening in the future. At some point, she would have to walk away with the memory of what she did. You couldn't remove her memory because then the disposition will remain.
1: I'm skeptical of the retributivist approach to punishment for a few reasons. Um, Because, so not only are there these difficulties about the nature of free will um, that, would require, I think, that you could have done otherwise. And if it's the case that Victoria Skilane was set on a path uh, according to the past state of the universe, combined with her genes and her environment and all that, such that she couldn't have done otherwise, then this idea that she ought to be held responsible because she deserved it, because she uniquely chose to do these things, um, is in a troubling position. I think that's one problem with the retributivist Approach. um, It's also the case that the episode raises additional questions about the nature of her own agency more broadly. So she says that she was put under the spell of her fiance, right? That she didn't really um, choose to do this, that she was affected by him and coerced in some way. And it reminds me of. Carla Hamoka's defense. So Carla Hamoka was a famous Canadian serial killer who helped her partner, Paul Bernardo, rape and kill uh, a number of minors, including her own sister, Tammy Hamoka. And she struck a deal, um, according to which she only had to be in jail for 12 years, Um, because she said she was a victim of domestic abuse. And then later videos came out suggesting she was a more active participant in the crime than she suggested. So Canadians called it the deal with the devil. And a lot of people were really upset about the fact that she got released early. But from a feminist perspective, we can ask what was the nature of the relationship Victoria had with Ian? You know, if there was a kind of domestic abuse situation uh, and she wasn't maybe as fully agential... Um, as we might like to think, then there are further difficulties. Even if you set aside free will concerns, there are just further difficulties about whether whether or not she was a a free agent um, in in a narrower sense. Um, So my sympathies are more with a consequentialist approach to punishment. uh, And I I think the episode displays, honestly, some of the ways that – Objections to consequentialism, I think, would suggest a consequentialist approach to punishment.
2: So I want to chat a little bit about Mark's suggested defense of the retributivist view. Um, Mark's suggested defense is the idea that she's the kind of person who would do these things, regardless of whether she remembers them at the time or not. Um, That's a weird defense. There's a lot of people are the kind of people who would do things, but we don't want to prosecute thought crime. So we we don't want to take them off the street and punish them or incarcerate them um, before they perform a crime. And if she really has lost her memory entirely, is she not just one of those people? As the episode progresses, she starts to regain some of her memories. So perhaps she's not that kind of person. But just for a moment, imagine she is, at least at the beginning of the episode, she is. She's the kind of person who has no memory. Um, it seems like she's has the same moral status as someone who hasn't performed any crime yet, but has the dispositions to do, but may never do so, may, but may not. Um, We wouldn't want to take someone similar off the street who's never performed a crime um, and incarcerate them. So why should we want to do so to her?
1: Were you suggesting that as a retributivist kind of defense or as a deterrent uh, defense, right? That she could, we could justify her punishment on the grounds that, if we don't punish her, she's still the kind of person who would commit this horrible crime. So we have to deter her or incapacitate her in some sense, which I find very convincing. But it doesn't require this kind of psychological torture. She could just be held in jail, and she would be incapacitated and effectively deterred from ever doing this again.
2: But even that is weird, right? Imagine jailing people on the street because you give them a brain scan and that they have the the disposition to perform a crime in future.
0: For clarity, yeah. it's not a retributivist account. It's a consequentialist account. So Jason has to bite this difficult bullet. The retributivist says we punish you for things you actually did. The consequentialist says you we get a benefit out of constraining you and deterring you yeah. because of the things you might do in the future. So that's how consequentialists go and justify punishments.
2: Yeah. It is a problem for both views, for the retributivist and for the consequentialist, for different reasons. So for the consequentialist, you should prevent them from performing crimes because that'll have positive utility or it'll, your future will have less negative utility, the crimes won't happen. For the retrib- retributivist, uh, you're, not punishing, you're not punishing the person for a crime they committed, but you, what you're doing is you're giving them, uh, you're treating them in a way that they deserve given their mental states. Um, and you could, as a retributivist, say, we're not going to punish mental states. You could do that. Um, but the consequentialist has a way out as well. So the consequentialist says, if we had a society like that, there's so many people who would be in so much trouble. We all have the disposition, this is one view of human psychology, we all have the disposition to, to act in these ways, uh, but we don't want to go and pre-punish everyone in advance.
1: Yeah, I, I think, so maybe part of the difficulty is that it's hard to imagine us accurately assessing what somebody, the crime somebody is going to commit with a brain scan, but I grant that were we to have such technology and be able to predict, this person's going to commit this crime, you know, if we don't stop. I do think the consequentialist would have to say that some sort of deterrent mechanism is appropriate there. And another thing that's fascinating about this episode is that it invites us to deal with the really uncomfortable question of whether any of us could do really horrific things were we put in the right circumstances. And, and, and could we be like, Victoria Skelane, or, uh, you know, a, a Nazi, Oskar Groning. Um, at times when I teach this, I'll, I'll talk about the the case of Oskar Groning, who was featured in a documentary called The Accountant of Auschwitz. And he's, he was somebody who, like, counted um, and sorted the money taken from the Jews and other inmates at Auschwitz. And he said he was just like kind of a cog in the machine. He wasn't directly involved in, in the killing, um, and he was 18 years old or something when he when he did all of that. Then he he wasn't just until the age of 93 when he actually had spoken out against Holocaust deniers in Germany, saying, "No, this happened. I was there." Anyway, he was he was found and so brought to trial in an attempt to hold um, some of the remaining nazis who are still alive responsible for for their crime and i think what what's what he he died actually but he was able to be um sent to to prison but what's uncomfortable about that case and about about episode is that we have to wonder whether any of us would actually have been all that different um if, if as you say capable um or many of us are capable of doing horrible things then is not just a product of our circumstances and upbringing and environment that we don't, in fact, you know, end up doing those They happen to be unlucky that you were born in Germany and brainwashed by the Nazis who convinced you that this was, uh, in fact, um, the, the thing that you ought to We like to think of ourselves as better than that, but I think psychological experiments like the Stanley Milgram experiment unfortunately show that, like, if there's a power enough authority figure, um, most any of us will comply.
0: Yeah, the episode raises a whole range of quite fascinating moral conundrums. As you say, the one is how much freedom do people have when they act um, and how obedient are people? What's interesting about what happened in Nazi Germany is that um, not everybody signed up to the SS. Not everybody um, partook in the killing of innocent civilians. And, um, that there was even a sifting process. So some people were taken on lesser um, expeditions. And when it was evident that they didn't have the stomach for killing, uh, were then removed from those kinds of units. So that those who participated in the killing seemed to do so quite consciously, and those who didn't hadn't opt out. Of course, there were many civilians who, let's say, knew what was going on and said nothing. Um, and that might be the kind of thing that we find people do all the time, is that they witness horrible things happening, but they are cowardly. And they find it difficult to speak out against things that are evil. And I think that cowardice might be more widespread than we would like. The other issue is, um, if we think about the behavior of those who participate in the White Bear Justice Park. So there's two views. The one is that they are really helping um, in the first place, express their disdain for what um, she has done. That's another account for uh, the purpose of punishment is that as a community, you should say this is out of accordance with our values. And so you send that signal. And by then actively participating in her punishment, they are demonstrating that in the same way that you might think that a jailer is not identical to a kidnapper, um, that even though they keep someone behind bars against their will, that the jailer has a good reason to do it, that there is a justice system behind it, uh, that this is not vengeance um, this is done in accordance with the rule of law, in the same way that an executioner is not the same as a murderer, uh, that they have a reason for why they put the hangman's noose on someone. And you might think that's what's going on with these citizens who participate in the photographing, that they're saying, what you deserve is to be photographed and we're going to do that and we have the protection of the rule of law. The other one is less generous, which it is just this atavism. It's the sense of you are... Uh, repugnant and it's a mob justice feeling and we just want to be able to celebrate your suffering and the closer we get to doing that the better for us and then that urge starts to look quite similar to her own urge.
1: Yes I think the fact that they are having fun and they are told to enjoy themselves and take pictures and have a good time like suggests a sinister Uh, interpretation of what the onlookers are doing because, I mean, you might think if you're just helping to defend the rule of law, you would still feel uncomfortable or um, act that there is a person suffering. Even if they deserve that suffering, you're not going to necessarily take pleasure or joy in participating in it, but that they clearly were. And I think it speaks to how awful humans can be when they get together in groups of people and and create community with each other at the expense of another individual's suffering.
2: I'm interested in the looping effect. So the idea that every night or every time after she's finished with her performance, uh, her memory gets wiped and she starts again the next morning, they reset, her room looks the same as it did when she wakes up. Um, I'm curious about what that looping effect does to um, what we think about her motives. So at the end, they inform her, okay, we're preparing the room. You'll be ready soon for the next cycle tomorrow. Um, and she's horrified by the idea. She says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Kill me. And I was, she's one, yeah, kill me instead. Yeah. Um, I wondered whether that's rational of her. Um, it seems like when she wakes up the next morning, um, she has no memory of what she did. And because she has no memory of what she did, she's not as bad off as she is at the end when she remembers what she's done. Um, She seems like she's in a better position the next morning, assuming it is her for a moment, Um, which again is an issue, but let's assume it's her. Isn't it rational for her to want to be reset because it'll be a break from her current uh, Mm -hmm. perceptions of herself, this like nightmarish view of herself as a murderer? Um, Mm -hmm. She seems better off at the beginning.
1: Good point. I think and that's why she she begs to be killed because even if she would get some relief the next morning, um, it's pretty quick, quickly after that she is terrified because she's being chased by a bunch of people who want to kill her. So like, you know, there's, there's an hour of relief before she runs through all, all of the horror associated with being chased down by a bunch of murderers. And and it's it's interesting because I think one point the episode makes is is like how much of a problem it can be when when we justify the punishment that somebody somebody sort of like using them as an as example. One one of the justifications that's cited for why she's you know uniquely deserving of being punished in this horrific way is that her accomplice escaped punishment. He killed himself uh, before he was actually able to be appropriately punished. And so people were angry about that. So this was also a way of, of satiating the punitive urges of the population.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's something particularly horrifying about an eternal recurrence. Uh, the idea that you're doomed to repeat a situation over and over again uh, seems particularly awful. And there's many awful stages in what she goes through in the punishment. Um, the one in the beginning really is this bewilderment. Um, she wakes up with a sense of pain and of not knowing where she is. That confusion itself is, a, is an awful state. Um, and, but it ultimately leads to the realization of what she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that realization over and over again, I think is a difficult thing. Plus, of course, the horror of being chased throughout the episode of feeling like you're an innocent victim and then realizing you're not at all innocent. Um, There's something that you mentioned earlier, which is this idea that um, some women will make the claim when they're involved in these kinds of crimes that they did it because they were brainwashed or under the spell of a male lover, Mm -hmm. that they were spousally abused, uh, and that we should go lightly on them. Um, And we do find in practice that is what occurs. So women are generally sentenced to much lower um time than men uh, that the number of women who are incarcerated is much lower than the number of men and i worry that this runs counter to the feminist project mm-hmm. that if the feminist project really is one of saying that men and women are equal that implies that they are equally morally responsible that if we treat women like children and say well, you don't really know what you're doing you you're not a full agent that seems to undermine women as a category and so we might think that really if we care about the feminist project uh, we shouldn't take these kinds of claims of I'm just a little girl and I did not know what I was doing very seriously. We certainly wouldn't take them seriously from a man who said, I was just so filled with passion um, by this woman that I was consumed by that I was willing to do whatever she asked. And so when she told me, please kill my husband because I love you, I just was filled with eros. And of course I did it and wasn't really in a rational state. We go, sorry, buddy, like you know, we're looking you away for good. Um, and so if we don't take the claim on that side of the equation seriously, then I think we ought not to do it mm. either.
1: There, there are some attempt to walk a middle line between, you know, the view of women as pure childlike victims and the view of women as fully rational agents. And that's to say that these women like Victoria Scalane, maybe or, or anybody else who it's a horrific crime wasn't doing it. So much because they lacked like full rational agency, but rather they were presented with a very limited set of choices within the circumstance in which they found themselves. And it was actually rational to make the choice that they made. So I think some feminists say, I mean, this is obviously an extreme example, right? But imagine that. What he was saying was a gun to her head, saying, if you, if you do abduct this little girl right now, I will shoot you and I will shoot the rest of your family or something like that. So it may have been rational, actually, to make that choice in those circumstances. And if that's the sort of thing that the law takes into account, then it's not so much like you're just saying, well, you were a brainwashed victim, but rather we acknowledge the restricted option set that you had in the circumstances Um, And you could imagine other cases where women also might make choices that are not ultimately in their best interest, but they're in their best interest given the circumstances.
2: I'd like to chat about the free will question. So the question of whether she is free. Um, Let's put aside the identity question. So let's assume she's the same person Mm -hmm. who committed the murder. Um, when we initially watch her wake up, she performs a series of actions. So she checks her head Oh my goodness. I've got such a headache from the memory wiping, assuming, assuming, uh, she looks at her wrists, she walks over to the window, opens the curtains, looks at the mirror, and then we watch in the next reset that she does exactly the same series of actions. And we also see that as the episode continues, she's going to take the same path. Mm -hmm. So she's going to run from the house onto the grass to, to the petrol station. Um, so it seems like her actions are predetermined. She just performs the same actions every day if you rewipe, if you wipe her memory to the same point. Um, and then it, asks, it begs the question, could she have acted differently given the initial crime? Um, and if she couldn't have, because it seems like she couldn't have acted differently, was she free in doing so? And if she wasn't free in doing so, um, should we punish her?
1: Yeah, the threat of determinism would imply that because of this, state of the, of the universe 10,000 years ago, plus the laws of physics and plus quantum mechanics. As Joshua, uh, Josh Cohen argue, right, we have to accept the determinist conclusion or the idea that you couldn't have done otherwise, right, that, that you are a product effectively of forces well beyond your control. And when I would teach this to my students like five years ago or so, there would be like really strong objections to this idea that you really want to hold on to free will. <laughs> And, and just teaching this past week, I had any resistance. And one student who was like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a total digest. And um, what, what Green and Cohen argue is that the more we come to understand neuroscience and the, the fact we have about the brain and how, for instance, neural firings that determine your decisions take place before you even make the decision consciously in your head, um, you uh, all of that neuroscientific um, evidence, I think, is, is coming on to our students, too, and, and such that they're starting to have a different perception of, resp- of free will and moral responsibility. And, and, and Green argued that the law is going to have to change in light of uh, what we know about the lack of like free will, in a sense. So they think we should be consequentialist about punishment and not retributivist for that very reason. Um, And I'm inclined to agree, so if we were to say that Victoria is not, like, ultimately free, that she couldn't have done otherwise, then I think the retributivist justification of punishment does go out the window, and we'd have to justify punishing her on the grounds that, you know, she— kept of the population because she's a dangerous individual. That's how they describe her. She's a dangerous individual. Think of her like a lion. And she very much is like a, a treated like an animal in a, in a zoo. And I think we can talk about the ethics of that too. I mean, that, that, uh, yeah, we'd have to establish that she really is a, a dangerous individual who needs to be kept from the rest of, of society. Um, and I think if you can't justify that, if, if it's the case that really only committed what she did under the particular circumstances in which she sat, found herself with Ian Rannick, then she shouldn't be punished actually. And that's you know, an uncom- uncomfortable conclusion for some people, but I, I think it's the right conclusion if you endorse the consequentialist approach to punishment.
0: Yeah. I think the difficult pull the consequentialist to bite is the case where someone commits a one-off crime of passion and they say those circumstances will never be present ever again. Um, mm-hmm. and I will never kill anyone else ever again. So there's no point in punishing me. Um, you get it in a clock of orange. Um, so the idea is we can just put you through this treatment. So whenever you are exposed to any kind of violence, it'll fill you with a sense of revulsion. And so you'll be incapable of performing any violent acts, uh, because you'll be on the floor heaving and vomiting. And so instead of locking you up for all the murders you committed and all the rapes you performed we'll just give you this pill and then you're no longer a danger to anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the consequences have to bite those kinds of bullets and I think that's Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Um, There is a sense in which the way that the character in the episode is punished meets a lot of the different theories of punishment. Mm -hmm. If we set aside the memory erasure and we think that this is the same person, we can justify what happens to her um, on the grounds that you're sending a very strong signal. Mm -hmm. If you do something like this, you'll be punished in this way. It's uh, proportionate to what you did. Um, so the retributives should be happy on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, it sends the signal from the community uh, and involves members of the community in the punishment mm-hmm. um, in a sense which should also strengthen their convictions that kidnapping and raping kids is a terrible thing and you shouldn't be complicit in doing so. Um, of course, the feeling that you get from the episode is still one of great discomfort. Um, I don't think you walk away going, ah, justice was served. Fantastic. Uh, I think you feel pulled in lots of different directions. And that's the power of being able to play this moral narrative out in the way that only black men really can, which is to leave you thinking about it for years to come. And you've taught this course for five years.
1: Yes. Yes. The power of black mirror. It's, it, it, it's true. This episode, like you can, you can read all different views of punishment into it. Retributivist and consequentialist and, and expressive. And uh, that's and then there are all, all the identity issues and the free will issues that we that we've discussed um, as well. I think too the problems for the consequentialist view of punishment is that it might not only imply that the, you know, the rapist like shouldn't be punished, but in fact it would be okay to send that rapist you know, off to a beach, live a very happy existence and can you know, have all kinds of pleasure as long as no one found out, right? This is always the problem. Well, if no one found then what would be wrong with, with that? Um, but I mean, I think there are good risks to those kinds of, of objections as well.
2: Yeah, so let's talk about Mark's objection of the poll, right? Yeah. So if you perform a negative, if you perform a crime, the consequentialist has to accept that your punishment might just be to either get punished or take a pill, uh, to forget that you performed the crime, and then uh, you're good to go. Um, but that's, I, I don't know, I think in that kind of society, you'd have a lot more crime. So that seems to have negative utility for society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to, if you had that as a policy, you'd be living in a society where there was tons of crime, and so you wouldn't want to have that as a policy.
0: Well, the way it's dealt with in Clockwork Orange, it's not a forget-me pill, it's a revulsion pill. Mm. Um, so it does actually stop you from committing the crime. Uh, ultimately, the idea in the film is that the policy is reversed because it undermines people's freedom. So the idea is that it's better to allow people to do these bad things than to deprive them of that. Um, and ultimately, uh, I think he's uh, treated as someone who um, was unjustly treated by the state and is released. Um but yeah, I agree. You can jig the consequentialist and experiments in a manner which makes it look like we ought not to do that because the consequence would be bad. But if everybody knew I'm going to have to take the revulsion pill um, and I don't want to lead the rest of my life sick to my stomach at the thought of violence, mm-hmm. I better behave. That's a further general deterrence um, for not committing crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. How bad is the revulsion pull. Suppose you are revolted by the fact that you're not revolted by
2: the desire to commit these crimes and you want to reform, but you can't. So the quickest route to do so is to commit the crime, get the pull, so you're not revolted. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, these are interesting questions. When you look at consequentialist um, considerations, you look at not just the consequences for the agent uh, and the immediate victim, but for society as a whole. Um, Also the case you're giving the Clockwork Orange case is interesting because it might highlight where two different values pull in opposite directions. So you've got the consequentialist who says the moral thing to do is X, and then you've got the question of how much interference the state should have in our daily lives Mm. um, and whether it should be able to alter our very consciousness and our minds um, by forcing us to take a certain pull that changes our dispositions. Um, That seems like a huge imposition on us, Mm. but it might have positive consequences. So you've got morality um, pulling in one direction and consequentialism, Mm. Morality and consequentialism pulling in one direction, and then you've got another direction which is autonomy, and autonomy from the state pulling in a different direction. So you've got okay. these two conflicting values. But that's not an objection to utilitarianism. It's just an objection to it's not an object, It's not an objection to consequentialists. It's an objection. Mm. Um, it, it's just highlighting that we have two different values that pull in different
1: directions. Except, I think it sometimes is leveled as a problem um, for for Jensel, because, you know, there's this question of whether or not Mill's views in on liberty and the harm principle are totally compatible with his broader utilitarianism, right? So his view is that maximal freedom and as little interference as possible from the state is going to create a better state and better uh, community uh, of citizens, Um, but... Of course, that's not necessarily going to be true, and I, I I think as a consequentialist, Mill would would have to acknowledge that like if it were the case, for instance, that you could take moral enhancement pills and make every single person morally good, you know, which is something just in the enhancement literature, that's you know would be enormous interference to force people to take pills that make them morally good, but it would it would that would have to be the right act, I think, for the consequentialist. So I think in that sense that those values can come into conflict sometimes.
2: I I agree. I think Mull's point is too strongly held. I think both his positions are correct. I just don't think that they're so compatible um, in the sense that he thinks the one implies the other. and I think that's wrong. I think you're quite right to point that out. Um, yeah. But I don't think that's an objection to either view. Yeah. Um, I just think that you overstated by having this meta principle that the two views
0: always cohere.
1: Yes. Yeah, I agree.
0: On this front, this is a continual discussion, Jason, and I've had over the years about whether you can really have parallel principles that it's mm. not possible to collapse. I take the view that utilitarianism's um, promise is to say there is just one thing that matters and it's utility. And we can fold in all these other values into that. So aesthetic pleasures and uh, moral pleasures and all these other things go together. And we can then calculate out. We can tell you this is what you ought to do. Um, And it gives you a theory of everything. And so I then don't think it's open to say, oh, the moral question and the other, let's say, meaning of life question uh, or autonomy question just generate different answers and we have to come up with some extra principle that tells us what to do. I thought the whole point of utilitarianism was it tells us what to do by incorporating all the other principles. Um, but it's a nice question and it's one that Jason and I disagree on and one of our prior guests that Metz backs Jason on um, and he thinks that there are these multiplicity of values and to try and work out which ones you use, that's the kind of bigger task.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my, my view is that Mill was probably right that, for instance, you know, maximal um, of speech and, you know, granting in, uh, individuals as much autonomy as possible will maximize utility in the long run more often than not. So we should, we should give as much autonomy and be as libertarian as possible as far as the involvement of the state is concerned for utilitarian reasons. So it is, for me, subsumed under the larger um, like monist utilitarian value, or just, in other words, the, the one um, fundamental moral uh, value, namely utility or you know, increase happiness, um, or if you're a million about it. That's
2: very interesting. So you take that hardcore utilitarian view where you say, if you look at the very long-term consequences, um, society will have better utility if we give everyone um, maximal free will freedom, autonomy from the state?
1: I mean, I, I think that this is the thing that, that's tricky, right? I mean, this is an empirical question, and it's one that I just, I almost sort of hope that Mill is, is right about that. Uh, but I think it's a genuinely tricky question, and I, I, I think that you as a utilitarian have to acknowledge that there really might, are going to be some cases in which it's just not going to be true that maximum autonomy and maximum freedom to individuals is going to be conducive to utility um, more, more broadly. But is it the case that in general societies that are you know, more uh, paternalistic and you know, <laughs> that, that have more control over their citizens produce like, a happier polis we would have to do studies to figure it, figure that out. It seems to me that, like Mill himself, he was deprived of autonomy as a child, and said that you know his father had way too strong a hold on his upbringing, and you know he was put through a very rigorous educational program, and partly I think was was led to to his view of liberty because he he became suicidal at the age of. of 20 or something um uh, and felt like what we need to do is encourage individuals obviously to pursue their own ends and experiments in living and that's what's going to make people happiest
0: one of the things the episode touches on is the question of how a good idea social media is um if you think about it from the kind of uh mill's perspective it's this unbelievable um ability for people to be able to transmit their ideas to each other, to rapidly find out um, what everybody thinks, to share their views, to have the marketplace, to have the clash of swords. Um, And that seems wonderful, right? That you don't have the small number of newspapers, you don't have the state run Pravda, this is what you've got to believe, you've got all these citizens who can participate. But then there's this dark side to it, right? Um, Which is that people don't just uh, share things that are true, um, or share things where they show they're doing good things, they share images of them doing horrendous things, that the incentive structure for being on in a social media space really is attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can get attention for doing good things or for doing horrific things. And what you have here, the lead character filming her fiance performing these horrendous acts, leads to this high level of notoriety. Um, And then again, you have all the sort of people coming to the park, wanting to film their experiences and being able to share, I went to Justice Park and i got to go up close to the line and disseminate that. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of sick urge that could be in that. And then, of course, the latest version that we've seen of this, which is really horrifying, is uh, Hamas strapping body cameras um, to terrorists on October 7th so they could film themselves um, mutilating uh, innocent civilians, performing acts of murder, um, recording themselves telling their family members, that we're so happy we've killed 10 Jews. There's this really coercive extreme version of what's allowing average people to do, to record this, to disseminate it, to share it, can do to fuel terrorist organizations. And I think Black Mirror has always done this wonderful job of exposing this bold new world we live in where everyone's got a cell phone and they can use it for good or for bad. And the the show tends to show you the dark side of that.
1: Absolutely. you know. I mean, on liberty, with Mill saying that, you know, historically, we're more worried about entrance from the state and government authorities, and sure, we can still worry about that. But the, the biggest threat um, nowadays to our own individual autonomy is other people, right? The tyranny of the majority opinion and, you know, people being terror, being canceled and maybe saying things online, for instance, about what's happening in the Middle East, even if they're totally ignorant, but feeling compelled and at times being called upon to take a stand, um, even if they really don't know what's going on. I think what the, the scary about social media right now, at which also pushes against Mill's kind of marketplace of I- ideas, defense of free speech, I mean, his, he, he thought eventually, you know, stronger argument will emerge, right? That it will collide with error and we will get to the truth. So it's okay if you have misinformation out there. It's okay if you have bad, dangerous, false ideas out there. Um, And maybe that's true in the academy, although I I don't even know if if that's uh, necessarily the ideal that we're always living up to nowadays, although I'm, I'm very much attached to it. But on social media, the marketplace of ideas really I think often is just leading to more false beliefs and more dangerous actions as a result of that. I mean, I think the most disturbing thing about what's happening um, with the discourse online about Israel and Hamas is how much misinformation there is, and how many people, given the way algorithms function, and given how they'll be stuck in their own echo chambers. There are are, are people who still believe that, you know, the the fired at the hospital in Gaza that was like widely attributed um, to Israel um, was a rocket that Hamas fired, um, and that you know all shows that that it was a Hamas rocket, but there are still so many people who believe otherwise. And I think that's true for so many of the facts on the ground. Um, people have access to very different informational networks here. Um, so I don't know what Mill would have thought about <laughs> social media and whether or not social media companies or the government should intervene ever to stop the flow of, of misinformation. I think he, he would have thought je- that that's that that's. But He also did an era in, in which What we see now is totally uh, unthinkable to him, right? I mean, and it really could be the case that we are worse off as knowers by having all this misinformation out there. And and ultimately what Mill cared about was getting to better knowledge.
2: There are interesting questions around whether as a libertarian or a million you can um, defend the view that the state should not intervene in preventing misinformation, Mm -hmm. um, but but that individual companies can. So Mm -hmm. Facebook um, on the million view might be seen as an individual, not the state. And so Facebook can say on our platform you cannot post this, Mm -hmm. um, while at the same time saying that the state cannot force Facebook to prevent people from posting misinformed posts. Um, so you, you can, as a libertarian, sort of thread the needle there. Um,
1: yeah, I, I, it's tricky though, because when you think of companies like Facebook or Twitter, um, I mean, I understand what you can think of them as, as individuals, but they are where democratic interaction is taking place most prominently, right? So if, if, if you think that like, part of the reason it's wrong for the state to intervene is that it um, tramples on you know, individual autonomy and, and rights to access your own views, then it looks like Facebook and these other companies would would also be doing something wrong because they'd be using their massive power to shut down individual expression. I guess it really depends, obviously it really depends on uh, how you understand the, the movement against state interference.
2: It also depends on whether it's the only game in town. So when the state rules over a large geographical area in which you're situated, it's the only game in town. You're subjected to the state's rule. Um, it seems you can choose to log off Facebook and log on to, to a platform that's more friendly towards your views. Um, and so it's not the only game in town, which might give Facebook more right on the libertarian view to restrict free speech on their platform.
0: Yeah, I think there's a really good discussion to be had about how we should view these private companies. Um, I think it's billions of people that are Facebook users. Um, There is no genuine rival to it. Uh, It is just absolutely gigantic. Um, What's interesting, if we think about a company like Twitter, um, Musk buys it Mm. and has this investigation into what had occurred before it bought. And he says it seems that there were enormous biases, partly uh, due to the influence of the American government. So he says that there was a bias against Republicans and in favor of Democrats. And he takes the view that's a bad thing. We should be more neutral on that. And at the same time, what you have is a lot of, let's say, left-leaning people who are using Twitter uh, leaving the platform and saying, so, uh, we don't want to be associated with this thing given that we view Musk as a right-winger and we don't like uh, the direction which it's taken. And so you have these other rivaling things floating around. And it might be that we just live at a, at a time now where you've got a small number of these media companies we have an enormous number of users, and we don't, and they are the only games in town. But maybe in time, you'll have many games in town, and so people will gravitate towards the places that are partisan or impartial or heavily regulated or not heavily regulated. Um, and thinking about what's good to have uh, and how you deal with speech, given that so much speech happens in the digital space as opposed to in the public square or in uh, in newspapers, thinking about what kind of policy we would like on that front is really important. I think one of the things that has also happened recently is thinking about other actors like universities and how universities have for a number of years put out statements taking a very strong moral position. So on Black Lives Matter, university administrators came out in full support Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the statements that they sent out, um, in terms of the symbolic gestures that they were involved in. Um, But on the recent uh, Israel conflict, We've seen a lot less of that. And suddenly a move to say, as the university administrator, maybe I should stay away from these vexed issues. Uh, That seems like a double standard. Um, But there's also a question as to, do you have an obligation to speak about uh, all injustices? Mm. Um, How much time do you need to spend before you pick a side? Um, Israel-Palestine is a clearly vexed question. um, And taking a view on that is going to upset someone. Um, And so would it be better if universities stayed out? Um, Would you like them to take a nuanced view, which is, you know, let's say, outright condemn the acts of terrorists, uh, which shouldn't be too hard, uh, but then maybe take a view about what Israel's response ought to be? Um, And should you be canceled for saying something horrific? If you go out and endorse the killings of Hamas, is it the kind of thing we can say? University should be free to disassociate. Um, Or a future employer should be able to say, uh, we're not going to hire you, uh, given what you've done. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, all these questions are so important. I've know quite a few people who think that everything that's been happening around universities issuing very mild statements, for instance, about um, the Hamas terrorist attacks, or you know just any statement that obviously is going to be upsetting to, to some people in this highly divisive issue suggests that universities should abide by the Kelvin. R- report, which I think is out of the University of Chicago, where there's just this this blank rule that universities don't weigh in on, you know, th- their own inns. Uh, and, you know, who do they speak for when they say that about whatever is happening in the world? Um, because The purpose of the university is to be an educational space in which, you know, a number of ideas and contested positions are explored. So if if you have an university administration kind of coming along and get uh, a, a very specific take on these contested moral and political questions, then you kind of work against the larger purpose of the university. And I think what, what's happening right now is just this, this reckoning over what the university even is. And there's a massive battle taking place among those who think that universities, you know, primary should be educational and not really in, in the business of taking a specific, like, line on different justice issues and others who think that universities should be, you know, instructing students in the correct moral views and which would include, you know, condemning regular um, kinds of um, acts out, out in the world. Uh, my, my view is that we should take the former rather than the latter approach. And so university administrators should, should just stay out of the business of, you know, publicly commenting every time something happens in the world. Also, there are horrific things happening all over the globe. so you end up being selective no matter what. I mean, uh, especially if if you're um, an international faculty member, depending on where you're, you're, you're from, um, you know, if you're Syrian um, or or, or Turkish, I mean, you you can think of any number of horrific (laughs) tragedies that are taking place around the world, only some of which are commented on. So you also kind of then invite this concern that you're being selective about what, what, message you're sending and who you care about.